Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Why do you think there are so many presumptions about you? I don't know. You know, I became successful and famous early on. That irritates people. Some people. And, um... I don't know. Jealousy, envy, irritation. Maybe they don't like my pictures. I don't think that the picture that was painted of me was really close to accurate. I didn't think it was an arrogant bastard. Maybe I was. I, I certainly had self-confidence to a degree, which I think scares people sometimes. Yeah. I don't know, Ben. I don't know. I'm Ben Mankiewicz, and this is season one of The Plot Thickens, a new podcast from Turner Classic Movies. Each season will bring you an in-depth story about the movies and the people who made them. We're starting off with a familiar story in Hollywood, one of remarkable success at a very young age and failure just a few years later. Success is very hard to handle, and then failure after success. It's even harder. Peter Bogdanovich is a man of many Peter passions. Peter Bogdanovich burst upon the Peter Bogdanovich world. is best known as a director of films like The Last Picture Show. And Peter, Bogdanovich Peter Bogdanovich helped change the way movies were made in Hollywood, starting with his first hit in 1971, The Last Picture Show. Peter had the looks and charisma of a movie star. And even when he was just starting out, he had the vision and confidence of a seasoned director. For a while, Peter seemed invincible. There's a number of myths about you already, even though you're very young, like the fact that you had a goal set for yourself that you would make a movie at the same age Orson Welles did. Oh, I wanted stuff. to, I thought I'd be a failure if I didn't make a movie at least by the time or, I was 25, which is when Orson made Citizen Kane, and I was a disaster because I didn't make one until I was 27. His self-confidence, he knew what he wanted to do. He teaches people how to act. He just wanted them to be themselves. Peter's career was kind of the ultimate triumph of the film critic, film nerd, film buff. He could really see the love that we had together. He wanted us to be all a family. He's humbled by age. That's what happens when you get older. Peter's story is also full of romance and an all-consuming love. Soon she fell in love with another man, director Peter Bogdanovich. And about what happens when that disappears. Playboy magazine's 1980 Playmate of the Year has been found shot to death. And finally, around 11 o'clock, phone rings, I answered it. It was Hefner. He said two words, Dorothy's dead. This is a story about how things fall apart 
how tragedy changes a person. But it's also about what remains, what keeps us going. And in Peter's case, that's always been the movies. Whether he's interviewing the men who made them, watching them, or directing them on set himself, movies connect Peter to others. I actually think it's part of how he understands his own humanity. Peter has written books about movies, and he tells great stories about how they were made. At 80 years old, he still watches movies almost every day. I cried last night when I watched it. It just killed me. You know, I, I cry at quality. <laughs> I do. I, I, when I see something well done, I, I, I get choked up. And when movies brought Peter to the top, it was glorious. I called Cary Grant and I said, guess what, Cary, my new picture is opening the Radio City Musical. Oh, that's nice. I had 28 pictures played the hall. <laughs> you did? I used 28 pictures? Yes, every picture I made played the hall. <laughs> I tell you what you must do. Put on some raincoat and some sunglasses. Well, you won't need that. But go there and stand in the back. And you listen and you watch while 6,500 people laugh at something you did. It will do your heart good. And he was right. I did go. And it was amazing. This is the story of how Peter Bogdanovich became Peter Bogdanovich, one of Hollywood's great directors. We begin with episode one, Bugs. In school, and from the time I was in kindergarten through the thir- 12th grade, um, they called me Bugs. Mainly Bugs, because I did a Bugs Bunny impression when I was a kid. Hey, what's up, Doc? <laughs> Peter Bogdanovich, even at 80, is yeah. still a great mimic. And then later on, they called me Marlon, because I did Brando, and Dean and Jerry, because I did them. When you did Brando, what, did you, what Brando did you do? Well, it was on the waterfront, I guess. I could have been a contender. No, oh, it's good. That is good. Could have been somebody, somebody instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it. This is one of my favorite things about Peter, his ability to do impersonations. Whenever he tells stories about the Hollywood stars and directors he's known, Peter starts to imitate them. Cary uh, Grant. Remember, Peter, people do not like beautiful people. Otto Preminger. No, I don't get ulcers. I give them. Orson Welles. He said, this is Orson Welles. I, I can't tell you how long I've wanted to meet you. And Howard Hawks. He said to Bogart, you're the most insolent man on the screen, and we're going to make this girl more insolent than I you. I wanted to... And this is Peter doing the Psycho. director of Psycho, Alfred Hitchcock, on CNN back in the 80s. He said to me, oh, you know, Paramount Pictures made for me a torso made entirely of rubber. When you plunge the knife in... Blood would spurt out. Oh, it was wonderful. I'm telling you, when Peter does impersonations, it's impossible not to laugh. I met Peter for the first time eight years ago. I was really nervous. Nervous because Peter knows so much about Hollywood history, more than I ever will. Nervous because I was worried he might see me as a fraud faking my way through my job as a host at Turner Classic Movies. Hello, I'm Ben Mankiewicz. This is Turner Classic Movies. Tonight, three in a row from one of the five... Yeah, that's my day job. Anyway, there was another thing I was nervous about. Citizen Kane. A movie that came out in 1941. 
Many film critics and scholars say Citizen Kane is the greatest movie of all time. Peter certainly admired it. It inspired him to become a director. It was when I saw Citizen Kane, believe it or not, and I was just, oh, he directed it. That guy on the screen behind the camera directed it. I think that's the first time I became aware of the necessity for a director. Charles Foster Kane is a scoundrel. His paper should be run out of town. A committee should be... And Orson Welles, the man who directed and starred in Citizen Kane, was Peter's hero, and for a while, his close friend. So what does any of that have to do with me? My grandfather, Herman Mankiewicz, was a screenwriter, one of the first and one of the best. He wrote the screenplay for Citizen Kane. But believe it or not, that's a controversial thing to say. My family had one foot in media and politics and the other in Hollywood. On the left, my dad was Bobby Kennedy's press secretary. Senator Robert Francis Kennedy died at 1.44 a.m. He delivered the news that sent the country into mourning. He eventually helped run George McGovern's presidential campaign and became president of National Public Radio. On the right, my great-uncle Joe wrote and directed movies, famous Oscar-winning ones. Like all about Eve. Study playing that childish little game of cat and mouse. Not mouse, never mouse. If anything, rat. But Herman, my grandfather, he was the first to break into Hollywood. He was a former newspaper man, and Citizen Kane is the movie he's most known for, which is appropriate since it's set in the world of newspapers. He shared Kane's screenplay credit with Orson Welles. Together, they won the movie's only Oscar. In 1971, the critic Pauline Kael wrote an essay in The New Yorker saying that Orson Welles had very little to do with the screenplay for Kane. She gave most of the credit for the script to Herman. This did not go over well with fans of Orson Welles. The mere mention of Pauline Kael today sends them into a rage. I wasn't sure how Peter felt about what Kael had written, but I was worried about it. So this is what's in my head eight years ago, when I'm in Toronto getting ready to host a screening of Peter's most famous film, The Last Picture Show. I had to meet him the night before in the hotel bar. I walked in and looked around. He was easy to spot. I mean, he looked just like Peter Bogdanovich. Dark hair, oversized glasses, and a bandana tied around his neck. Most people would call it an ascot. As you'll hear, it's not. I walked over, palms sweaty, and I introduced myself. He turned and sneezed, and then he apologized. Peter Bogdanovich, he said. Nice to finally meet you, Ben. I have a terrible cold. Rarely had someone else's illness given me such joy. Peter Bogdanovich had a cold. He's just like me. I get colds. This was good. Peter's phone rang. He fumbled as he tried to answer it. Hello? Then a pause. Oh, I'm okay. Thanks for checking. He put his hand over the phone and looked at me. It's Sybil, he said. Wait, Sybil Shepard? Peter cast Sybil in the last picture show. He fell in love with her and left his wife for her. They eventually broke up, but now she's calling 50 years later to see if he's drinking enough tea. What is going on? Well, that night and every time I've met with Peter in the years since, I'll just say this. It's never not interesting to me. That night in Toronto was the beginning of a friendship. Not long ago, I asked Peter to tell us his story. So we sat down in a little studio in Burbank, 
and started talking. Are we rolling, by the way? We're rolling. Thanks. We met for hours at a time, five times in all, as he walked me through 80 years of life and movies. Peter showed up for every session wearing black jeans and a black jean jacket, walking with a cane. He broke his leg last year in France at a film festival that was honoring him. Yeah, I still use this as what I call a staff, because I don't like the sound of a cane. And of course, he was wearing that bandana, his signature, tied around his neck. The bandana came from picture show because everybody was a Texas thing, and I, I started wearing a bandana because it seemed like a nice thing to do. Also, it, it felt good, it felt cozy. They think they're ascots. Some people gave me ascots. It's not an ascot, it's a bandana. Ascots are silk, and you, you tie them differently. Yeah. I wouldn't wear anything that pretentious. Pretentious was a label Hollywood gave Peter in the 70s, but no one paying attention would call Peter pretentious now. He drank lemonade during our talks, lots of it, and was quite fond of chocolate chip cookies from Vaughn's, the grocery store chain. Peter was born in New York City in 1939. His mother was an Austrian Jew. His father was Serbian. They fled from the Nazis and emigrated to the U.S., the year Peter was born. My father was Borislav Bogdanovich, and he was a brilliant painter, brilliant painter, and um, also happened to be a brilliant pianist, but nobody ever heard him play because he was too shy to play in front of anybody except his family. Peter's mother was Herma Robinson. Borislav and Herma met in what was then Yugoslavia. Herma's father was a wealthy business owner in Belgrade, and he hired Borislav to teach his daughter how to play the piano. Herma was 13. Borislav was 32. They married when Herma was 18. Herma's father wasn't thrilled, mostly because Borislav was poor and a painter. Once the couple arrived in New York, they lived in a two-room apartment on West 67th Street. When I was a young, very young, I was probably three years old, um, my father would tell me stories in the morning before breakfast. I'd come into his bed, and he would tell me stories about Donald Duck, because I'd seen Donald Duck in the comics and so on. And he, but they were completely fraudulent stories. I mean, the one I, lo- I remember the best was that Donald selling a, a dozen eggs, but he'd, he'd put a hole in each of the eggs and sucked out all the eggs. So all that was left was the shell. He was selling a dozen shells, <laughs> eggshells. I thought that was very funny. That's the one I remember. But he used to tell me, Donald Duck. Donald. Until Peter was seven, he thought he was his parents' first and only child. I was sitting in my father's studio, which was actually the living room of the apartment (laughs) where we were. And I saw a drawing of a young kid with blonde hair, and I said, who's that? And he said, that's your brother. I said, I met my brother. Yes, he was killed. Herma and Borislav's first child was a boy named Antony. He was born in Yugoslavia and died when he was only a year and a half old. He was reaching for some boiling soup on the kitchen, in the Kistovia, yeah. and uh, my mother ran to stop him from doing it and knocked it over by accident. And so he got burned? Yeah, yeah killed him. The shock killed him. In front of your mother? Yeah. Jesus. What? She never got over it. Did she talk about it? No. Once, when I asked her, and she couldn't get through it without crying. So I was conceived in tragedy, so while there was a tragedy going on, 
did things start to make a little more sense to you then? I mean, I imagine there's this sort of, you know, this is a tragedy that must have hung over the yeah, home. It did, but I didn't know it. They, they couldn't talk about it. I can understand that. Were your parents sad people? I think so, to a degree, because they had a great sense of humor. But I, I know that I think that's why it became funny, because I, I try to cheer them up. Peter's father didn't show much emotion, and he was an eccentric fellow. He didn't use shampoo when he washed his hair. He used Listerine. The mouthwash? Yeah. In his hair? Yeah. His hair probably smelled great. I didn't smell it, but... (laughs) (laughs) The Listerine made Borislav's hair stiff, and it grew straight upward. When he sat at his easel in the living room, he wore a straw hat with the top cut off. And he said because he needed the ventilation. (laughs) Uh, he was funny. Borislav had strong opinions. He wouldn't let Peter read any comics except Walt Disney and Warner Brothers. My father said it's forbidden, so I said, okay. But why? And he said, they are badly drawn. That's all he said. So Borislav was a bit of a purist. He was uncompromising, fully devoted to painting. He painted all day while Herma went to work for her father's company. Herma eventually began to help her husband. I don't know what year it was, I can't tell you, but my mother studied how to make frames. And she learned how to make frames with gold leaf frames and everything. Picture frames. Yeah, yeah, picture frames, uh, you know, for my father's paintings. And she did it brilliantly, and she did it all in her the apartment with a saw, that she had an electric saw, and she learned... Really, both of your parents were artists. And yes, yes, that's right. Peter admired Borislav's devotion to his painting, and he learned something from that. He was really almost like a walking encyclopedia on painting and and music. And I've done the same thing. I used that as an example for me to learn as much as I could about movies and and filmmaking. It was Borislav who introduced his son to the movies, taking Peter to see the masters of comedy. He taught me a lot. Took me to see silent movies at the Museum of Modern Art. How old were you? Five, six, seven. He grew up with silent pictures. He knew all of them, you know, and he loved Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. He told me to see Keaton, Chaplin, and Lloyd, pretty much. While Borislav was too shy to play the piano in front of an audience, Peter was the opposite. Even when he was a little kid, he was a hand. He wanted to perform, and his parents encouraged it. They took him to the Metropolitan Opera to see Don Giovanni, and he left afraid of the idea of going to hell. Peter spent a lot of time alone growing up. His younger sister, Anna, wasn't born until he was 13. His mother worked, and his father was either painting or out and about. He had plenty of time to be imaginative in that little New York apartment. So somewhere around the age of 10 or 11, Peter started making stuff. The first thing I ever produced and directed was a redo of a couple of radio shows. I loved radio. I grew up with radio. That was the thing, you know. Suspense. Suspense. You're always right with Autolite. Presents Suspense. What I would do is I taped the show, then I, believe it or not, transcribed the entire thing on the small typewriter I had. They're dead. Peter would record the radio broadcast on a Revere reel-to-reel tape recorder his parents got him for Christmas. Then he'd play the recording and transcribe it. I transcribed the whole fucking thing. 
When I think about it now, I don't know how I did that. And I typed it out in a little typewriter. And then I would redo the entire show, playing all the parts. For whom? For myself. On the recording. I, I taped myself doing it. And I put in new music. I, my uncle had a collection of a lot of classical music. I used, I remember I used Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring. How many parts were there? Oh, about six or seven. Any women? Yeah. You'd play them too? Yes, I did. I played them. <laughs> <laughs> As he got a little bit older, Peter started writing about movies. He'd go see a movie, come right home, and type out his thoughts on four-by-six note cards, kind of like mini-reviews. He still has all those cards, and we got a hold of a few of them, like this one, which Peter wrote when he was about 12 and a half. 1952, uh, wacky little comedy about some crazy youth potion experiments, well-directed and acted, particularly by Cary Grant. Monkey business. Monkey business, yeah. That's 1952, so that's one of the first. Yeah, one of the first, yeah. Where'd you get that? Uh, just, you know, broke into your house, stole the, <laughs> stole the card file. Peter kept writing, and the note card reviews got better. He was an observant kid, and he had the language to convey why he liked or didn't like something. Listen to your review from 55. So three years later, you've been doing it for, for since you were 12 and a half, so now you're 16. You've been doing it more than three years. Uh, exceptional. Superbly directed and photographed, brilliantly acted and written Western epic about the first cross-country cattle drive up the Chisholm Trail. I loved Red River. That was my favorite, one of my favorite movies. Take him to Missouri, Matt. Peter went to a fancy private high school called Collegiate. He has no idea how his parents paid for it. He told an Esquire reporter many years later that he doesn't think they did pay for it. They just ended up owing a lot of money, Peter said. Anyway, Peter says one of his high school teachers, a man named Henry Adams, helped him learn how to write. He said to me, he said to the class, begin with a bang and end with a snap. <laughs> and I still think of that. Begin with a bang and end. It's very good advice. After the break, young Peter goes toe-to-toe with a young Archie Bunker. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. When Anna, Peter's sister, was born, the family moved to Long Island and lived with Herma's parents for a year while they looked for a bigger apartment in the city. It was there Peter remembers having a big fight with his mother. One weekend, Herma insisted Peter go see a play. She'd already bought him a ticket, but Peter wanted to go to the movies to see the new Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis comedy. And she said, you're going to the play. I got very angry. I almost, I almost threw my typewriter at her. <laughs> 
Anyway, she won, and I went to the play, and I saw Henry Fonda in a play called Point of No Return by Paul Osborne. And I don't remember much about the play. I was enthralled. Yeah. And it was Henry Fonda, for Christ's sake. I'd seen him in movies. Here he was on the stage. I said, wow. That's enough. I'm not going to tell you again. I want you to get out of here. I promise. At one point in the first act, or second act, first act, somebody on stage said, God damn it. And I remember I turned red. Oh, really? And I looked around at everybody else. Nobody was bothered by it at all. I thought, because he didn't swear in movies. Right. And he swore. And I thought, Jesus. Herma was right. He loved it. Yeah, she won that one. Big time. Peter guesses he saw better than 300 plays during those years. Sometimes he'd take his girlfriend, Susie Tucker. They dated all through high school and talked about getting married. I don't know if I was in love with Susie Tucker or just the whole thing was so new to me. Kissing and necking and all that. Yeah. I'd done a little necking with a 13-year-old when I was 13. Um... I didn't think we'd be using the word necking today, I'll be honest. <laughs> but, uh, well, it wasn't sex. Yeah, I, yeah. I got you. I know what you're, I know what you're saying. It's just <coughs> that's, a, that's a word that has uh, fallen out of favor <laughs> with the young people. Yeah. Susie and Peter didn't last. She broke up with him when she went off to college, left him heartbroken. He was so upset, he went to a restaurant called Schraff's, a famous New York chain, where back then... You could get a decanter of wine for 50 cents. Peter, though, he needed the hard stuff. Had four screwdrivers. I thought you were supposed to get drunk when your girl leaves you. <laughs> screwdrivers. Yeah, it was mainly orange juice. Yeah. <laughs> you couldn't taste the vodka. Peter Bogdanovich, who knows more about movies than anyone I have ever met, did not go to college. All during high school, he acted in Summerstock Theater. When he was 16, he was a bit player at the Stratford Shakespeare Theater in Connecticut. He also started taking classes from acting coach Stella Adler. The only thing it is, is that you act with your soul. You do not act words, and you do not act this. You act with your soul. And you don't Marlon Brando was one of her first students. She also taught Robert De Niro, Eva Marie Saint, Warren Beatty, Candace Bergen, Harvey Keitel. You get the idea. You mustn't put anything on your body Peter loved working with Adler. He lied about his age to start taking her classes. He was only 16, and the rule was you had to be 18. But Peter was tall, and he got away with it. And she was great. I'd studied, it's the only thing I ever studied in, in show business, is acting with Stella Adler. And she was, of course, the great Stella Adler. She's from the group theater, and, and she liked me. In the fall of 1958, Peter was 19 and sitting in a diner with five guys from Adler's acting class. To this day, I don't know why I said this, but I looked at the five actors who were just sitting around drinking coffee or something. I said, why don't I direct you guys in a scene? They said, oh, all right. I said, what kind of scene? I said, I don't know, some scene with five actors, five characters. And we found a scene like that in a play called The Big Knife. The Big Knife was written by playwright Clifford Odets. It's set in Hollywood during the studio system, perfect material for Peter. The five young actors agreed and Peter directed them. They performed it in class. Very well, and everybody applauded, and Stella stood up and said, Brilliant, darlings, but you've been directed. Who directed you? <laughs> and, and they said, pointed at me. I was in the back of the stu studio. Peter. She turned to me, she said, Bravo, darling, brilliant. 
And I thought, shit, maybe I should direct the whole play. That was the moment when Peter switched his focus from acting to directing. He wrote to Odette's, who he didn't know, and asked for the rights to The Big Knife for an off-Broadway production. Odette's agreed, and Peter raised $15,000 to do it. By the time it all came together in 1959, he was 20 years old and directing his first play. It ran 63 performances, which is not great, but it's, it's respect- not nothing, right. respectable. Peter cast a young actor named Carol O'Connor in the role of a movie mogul. Eleven years later, Norman Lear cast O'Connor as Archie Bunker in one of television's groundbreaking sitcoms. Let me tell you something, Mr. Stivic. You are a meathead. During rehearsals for The Big Knife, things got tense with O'Connor. That's when Peter found his voice as a director. He liked to talk with the cigar in his mouth, Mm -hmm. which he did all through Archie Bunker. And um, I had a, a uh, clipboard with a lot of notes I took after a run-through. And so I was looking down at my notes, and I said, and Carol is still talking with a cigar in his mouth. I said like that. And he said, there's a lot more wrong with this production than the fact that I speak occasionally with the cigar in my mouth. <laughs> and I thought, now this is a crisis moment. He just, he just ar- argued with me, basically. I, I said, I can't just let this go by. So my mind is racing. So I kept my eyes on the, on the clipboard, and I said, yes, there is a lot wrong with this production besides the fact that you speak with a cigar in your mouth, but I want you to stop doing it. Because this is Clifford Odets, and this dialogue is great, and I don't understand what you're saying with a fucking cigar in your mouth. He did the thing, got great reviews... Went to Hollywood, became a star. And years later, not that many years later, but quite a few years later, uh, were nominated for Golden Globes, he for All in the Family and me for Picture Show. And he got up to the acceptance, and I'm sitting here, and he's right there. He says, I got started with a young director, arrogant son of a bitch, (laughs) who's right here, down here, Peter McDonough. And he gave me a tip of of his hat. I hadn't seen him since then. Twelve years later, eleven years later, he thanks you. In 1961, Peter was hired as the artistic director for a summer season at the Phoenicia Playhouse in upstate New York. He was 22. Before the season began, a petite blonde with a pixie haircut showed up at Peter's office to see if he needed a costume designer for the summer. Her name was Polly Platt. Peter hired Polly, and she would turn out to be his most important collaborator in movies and in life. I thought this was the greatest thing ever. You know, th- this, this couple was so creative. They worked together great. They lived together. This is what life should be. On the next episode of The Plot Thickens, Peter gets married. My father didn't think I should get married. So I was 20. And he said, you are too young to get married. You know what you should do. When you're walking down the street next time, you will see a, a child in a stroller. That could be your wife. And he nearly gets arrested making his first movie. We actually brought a girl onto the freeway. She got out of her car in the story, and we went bang, and she fell. got shot in the back and fell. <laughs> and that's when the cops came. There, there, <laughs> there was a bunch of cops came 
That's all coming up on The Plot Thickens. If you like what you've heard, please give us a review on iTunes, subscribe wherever you get podcasts, and share The Plot Thickens with a friend. Angela Carone is our director of podcasts. Our story editors are Joanne Farian and Susan White, editing by Mike Volgaris. Thomas Avery of Tune Welders composed our theme music, mixing by Tim Pelletier and Glenn Matulo. Production support from Yaakov Friedman, Susanna Zapeda, Julie Batone, Mario Riles, Heather Geltzer, Philip Richards, Ben Holst, DePonker Mazumder, Bailey Tyler, Zara Chowdhury, Jeff Stafford, and Millie DeCherico. Our web team is Josh Lubin, Mike McKenzie, and Matthew Ownby. Special thanks to Scott McGee, Steve Denker, and the Warner Media Podcast Network. TCM's general manager is Paula Shagnon. Our executive producer is Charlie Tabish, my great friend, who still owes me money. Or maybe I owe him. Check out our website at tcm.com backslash The Plot Thickens. It has lists of all the movies we've talked about, info about each episode, tons of great photos, a lot of cool stuff. Again, that's tcm.com backslash The Plot Thickens. I'm your host, Ben Mankiewicz. Thanks for listening. See you next time.